You're listening to This Nazarene Life, stories of young Nazarene clergy and their role models. TNL is a production of Young Clergy Network, a ministry of OKC First Church of the Nazarene, committed to listening to, collaborating with, and empowering young pastors over at youngclergy.net. This author's story features Joshua Broward, Megan Pardue, Greg Arthur, and Jess Menendorf chatting about their new book, Edison Churches, Experiments in Innovation and Breakthrough. Hey, thanks for all you do for young pastors, and thanks for tuning in. I'm Britt Bullerjack, and I'm here with my first guest, um, Reverend Josh Broward. And he's the Director of Missional Development for NorCal District Church of the Nazarene. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks, Britt. I've been listening pretty much from the beginning, and I, I'm really honored to be here. That's awesome. It's so nice to have you. Um, so you know the drill. The first question I ask everybody is, how did you end up in the Church of the Nazarene? Yeah, so I'm sort of a third-generation Nazarene pastor. Um, my maternal grandfather, my mom's dad, uh, was a Nazarene pastor for many years. He actually pastored Dan Boone and Andy Johnson when they were little kids in Macomb, Mississippi, oh, wow. or Dan, Dan was a teenager and Andy was a little kid. I, uh, and, um, so years later, uh, when my mom was, I. Uh, had graduated from Southern, well, back then Bethany Nazarene College and now uh, SNU. Uh, she was teaching in the Kansas City area and met my dad, who was just going to church because he was an insurance agent. And somebody told him at some conference, you should go to church because the people at church will buy insurance from you. Oh, wow. And I. Uh, so he was going there, and Chick Shaver was his pastor, oh, mm-hmm. and I played chess with him and basically prepared him to, I uh, like did the like hard sewing the or working the groundwork for my dad to become a Christian, mm. and then my dad became a Christian at, actually at a Billy Graham crusade, I uh, sort of on a date with somebody else, um, and he came back to church and. I, my mom saw him and said, are you sunburned? And he said, no, I became a Christian. I got saved. And that was sort of the beginning of their courtship. And I, shortly after that, my dad felt called to the ministry and I probably way too soon, like within like a year and a half of becoming a Christian, he started Gardner Church of the Nazarene on way out in the suburbs, like of Kansas city. Mm. I, and went on to start a couple of other churches and serve on staff at a church. Um, about not long after I was born, he had some personal struggles and left the ministry. But uh, our our family was dedicated Nazarenes, and so I grew up in the Nazarene church. But not really healthy Nazarene churches in some, especially when I was younger. And I, I decided that as a elementary kid, I decided that if this is what Christianity is, I don't think I believe in it. Mm. I, I just, I would listen to the adults in our church share testimonies uh, during the worship service. And then I would look at their lives and how they interacted with each other. And I thought, I don't think this is real. They're just fooling themselves. I remember a particular time when I, I was just like, this is all emotion, mm-hmm. and God isn't real, or if he is, he doesn't care about us, which is pretty precocious for, I don't know, a second or third grader. Right. Uh, but I, anyway, that's where I was, and so I did all the rebellion that an elementary kid can do. I shoplifted and exp- you know, learned how to curse and <laughs> did all that kind of stuff, I, and I, we moved from New Orleans to Houston, and uh, I talked my parents into bringing me back to the Louisiana District Camp. And uh, that camp had has I have no idea how they chose this speaker. He like on the surface, he was the worst possible speaker for a junior high camp. He was about 
75 or 80, very overweight, uh, white, white hair, wrinkle, like pockmarked, wrinkled skin, like just a crusty old dude. But that guy was full of the spirit. Mm. And he, when he preached, God moved. It was amazing. The first night, like almost everybody who wasn't already a Christian became a Christian. And those who were like had a significant spiritual moment. And uh, the second night, I was like, oh, man, I can, f- I should probably do this. <laughs> I, but I don't want to do it now. I'm going to, I'm going to wait until the last night. And not 10 seconds after I said that to myself, the old preacher guy said, now some of you are probably thinking, I'm going to wait until the last night. Don't do that. And I was just like, like I hear, heard like the Twilight Zone music going off in my head. And I, so I knew like God was doing something and God was clearly speaking through that guy. Mm. Uh, but I was just stubborn. Mm. And so at the end of the service, like they had the altar call and he said, now you either need to be down here praying for yourself or praying for somebody else. And there was me and like one or two other like extremely stubborn kids and and just with our arms crossed sitting in our spots. Mm. Somehow or another, I got to the back of the room. I don't remember how, maybe I was walking out. I don't know. And one of my friends who had gotten saved the night before testified to me and his face was just shining with joy. And he talked about how his heart felt clean on the inside and how much joy and peace he felt. And he said, don't you want to do this yourself, Josh? And I said, yeah, but I'm going to wait till, till the last night. And he said, didn't you hear what he said? He said, don't wait till the last night. I said, yeah, I heard him, but I'm going to do it anyway. And I, before too long, there was like this small little crowd of like five or six people lovingly harassing me to go to the altar and, and get right with God. And I totally do not recommend that as like an evangelism strategy for others. <laughs> but it worked for me. And I went down to the altar. And like by that time, almost everybody else was done praying. And it was just me. And I just I hit the altar. And I knew two things very clearly. I was wrong. And God was right. And I didn't need anybody to help me pray because I grew up in the church. I knew I knew all the answers. I mean, I think at this point, I was even like a quizzer. I just I knew that I needed to get right with God and stop fighting him. Mm. And so I did. And it stuck. Like I, I was radically changed. People at my school asked me like, what happened to you this summer? Mm. And my family asked me, I didn't tell people, they just asked me. And I, that set my life on a totally different course. And I slowly, um, I began to, uh, I, a couple of years later at a youth camp, I, I mean, we're sort of jumping into the next question, but that I felt a call to ministry. Mm. And of course, I was going to do it in the Church of the Nazarene because that's that's the place where that was my family's place. That was our tribe. And I, that's the place where where God changed me. Well, tell me more about that story. How, tell me about your call to ministry. How did you end up feeling like you wanted to be a pastor? I don't remember the details of it. And I think it was kind of blurry at the beginning. I remember it was at a youth camp and I don't know what the pastor, what the speaker was talking about, but I just felt very clearly that God, I I didn't hear like an audible voice or anything. I just had this sense that God wants me to be a preacher. And it wasn't like a pastor. It was a preacher. God had a call to preach. And so I went down to the altar because that's how youth camp rolls. I mean, I guess they still roll that way. I haven't been to one in a long time. But I, and I prayed and I, you know, ag- agreed. I, I, I accepted the call. But people would ask me, like, so you're called to be a pastor? And I say, no, I'm called to preach. Mm. And I thought, like, I was uh, big into speech and debate. I went to state and nationals and that kind of stuff. And so I had this vision of, like, I was going to be a preaching politician <laughs> and, like, work for God in the in government and, you know, I think like sort of personal 
grandiosity. I thought I was going to be the first pastor president or something. But anyhow, so I went to I went to college. I went to Mid America Nazarene University, largely because I had some family in the Kansas City area. Some sometime in my freshman year, I think it was in the spring semester in New Testament class. I for some reason Jim Edlin was sharing. He's the uh, professor, he was sharing the devotional from the Old Testament, from Abraham's story. And when he said, I, when he read from Genesis 12, 3, God saying to Abraham, I want you to leave your father's house and your father's people and your father's land and go to the land I will show you. Mm. I heard almost an audible voice say, I want you to do that too. And it was so strong. And part of me knew it wasn't like I hadn't heard it with my ears, but it was so strong that I turned around to see who said it. And I was sitting on the very back row. And when I turned around, my nose was about an inch away from the back wall. And so I heard kind of that twilight music thing again in my head. And I, I thought, either I'm going crazy or God is calling me to missions. And uh, so over the next couple of uh, days, I just prayed, like, God, I'm not sure that was you. It seems like you, but if it if it was, then just confirm it in my spirit. I, I think you're calling me to missions, and just make that clear to me. And so that's what happened. Over the next three or four days, it just became more and more clear that, that that's what God wanted me to do, and that's what God's calling on my life was. And so I started to talk to a few people about that, and they said, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, Like, I'd already been on some mission trips, and I was already kind of internationally minded, justice minded, and so people really affirmed that. And then maybe, I don't know if this was a, uh, this wasn't exactly a calling, but it was really a clarification for me. Uh, I went on a youth and mission trip, went to Papua New Guinea, and, and that kind of rocked my world. And uh, coming back, I was sitting down with, I think it was Gary Hartke, uh, who was helping do the debrief and was talking with us about what what our experience was like and, uh, you know, do we feel called to missions and what what kind of missions or what kind of ministry might make sense for us. And uh, he said something that just really stuck for me. He said, oh, I think you're the kind of person who should train leaders you should be a person who trains pastors and and leaders in mission, not mm. like not a pioneer missionary to go and start something new. But you, uh, just the the phrase that stuck was you should train leaders. I mean, I don't know. I was 21, 22, but I felt like yeah, that's what I'm supposed to do. And so I went, you know, finished college and went to seminary. And the whole time I'm thinking I should train leaders. And at some point, I'm going to get a doctorate in leadership. Mm. That's my calling. That's my that's my direction in life. Mm. But it didn't have any sort of direct fruit or bearing right away. I went to seminary, and I had a, a scholarship grant to major in evangelism. And while I was at NTS, I was work. I was heavily involved at Christ Community Church out in Olathe, where I, I had gone while I was at Mid America. And I married up uh, to a Messimer girl, Mia. So you've uh, interviewed Michael Palmer before on the podcast. We married sisters. He married Elizabeth, which is my wife, Sarah's younger sister. Um, but from there, you know, so I had this call to missions. And so we're trying to figure out what what does that look like? And we thought, you know, I would do the I would just go get a job as a pastor somewhere for two or three years and get ordained and then go, quote, you know, to the real missionary field, be a real missionary, uh, which in the Church of the Nazarene back then was be a career missionary. Now it's like a global missionary. And so we're trying to figure out where do we go to be, to learn how to be missionaries. And we just had this sense we probably shouldn't do that in white suburban America. That wouldn't probably prepare us well for cross-cultural ministry. Sure. Uh, and so we started looking at places where we could serve cross-culturally. We talked to districts that were very cross-cultural. We talked about church planning, but that didn't make a lot of sense since we thought we were supposed to transition to the mission field in a few years. 
And we ended up just one day, I was like, hey, Sarah, what about, remember when you were an exchange student at Korea Nazarene University and there's that little, tiny little English church, English service there? I wonder if they need a pastor. And she was like, yeah, maybe. And so we sent some emails off to Bill and Gail Patch, who are the missionaries. Bill was the president of Korea Nazarene University. And the timing was right. And we graduated and sold everything that wouldn't fit in a suitcase and moved to Korea at the age of 26, 20, and she was 25, I think, 24, uh, with our 11-month-old daughter. Wow. And we thought, you know, we would serve there for two or three years and then get ordained and then, again, go to, quote, the real mission field. Mm. When we were, it was like every year that we were there, we felt like we had to stay, like our timeline just expanded another year or two until after like three or four years, we said, well, we might be here for a couple of decades. We don't know, like a decade plus is what sort of our our feeling of it was going to take that long to really transition this tiny little church. It started tiny, you know, 20, 30 people into a church that could sustain itself in mission. Uh, slow, after about four or five years, the church was strong enough to employ me full time. And by that time, the church had probably around 100 people. We grew up to about 130 people and had people from 10 different countries almost every Sunday. And you know, the board had everything from an Indonesian immigrant who was working like literally as a garbage man, oh, wow. uh, all the way to like national level scientists who were interviewed by the Korean news media to talk about air health quality and scientists who uh, like invented parts for Samsung phones. Oh, wow. So we had the entire spectrum on our board. Uh, and Oh, it's just fascinating and beautiful and international students from all over the world. But uh, for a wide variety of reasons, we began to feel like our time there was was coming to a close and, and the church was strong enough to, to survive and endure without us and carry on in mission without us. And it has, by the way, it's, it's still going strong. They're just, they just celebrated a, a beautiful anniversary time, the 10th anniversary of their uh, official organization as a as a church, and one of the reasons we felt like it was our, like our time was up was I was beginning to feel a couple of calls. I felt a call to write. I felt a call to start my doctoral program in leadership, and I felt a particular call to help uh, the Church of the Nazarene adapt in the 21st century, and especially in America. I felt this real clarity that. America, for, for good or ill, America is is the guiding force for the Church of the Nazarene and largely for the Church around the world. And if we don't figure out how to be uh, faithful and effective and uh, missionally fruitful in the 21st century, that's going to cause major problems for the Church around the world. And so I felt called to go back to America and help us navigate this journey of adaptation uh, in in the Church of the Nazarene for the 21st century. So I found uh, Doonland Community Church. Uh, you'll talk to Greg, I think, later on the podcast. He's the senior pastor, and he had already been leading Doonland through this process of reinventing itself to be a, a new kind of church for the 21st century. Um, so another one of the lines that that has been ringing in my head and that I've been saying is that our world needs a new kind of church, but we don't know how to be the kind of church that our world needs. And so this is just a process of innovation and trial and error and experimentation. Uh, Doonlin was totally on board with the innovation experimenting phase. In fact, one of the things I uh, Greg talked about is we're really good at failing. And I was like, man, that's, tell me more about that. That's interesting. And he's like, man, we just keep trying stuff. And a lot of the time it doesn't work, but we figure that out. And then we try new stuff and we learn stuff from the things that fail, that we fail at. And, and we've just embraced that as part of the process. And so I thought, all right, if they're, if, if that's who they are, 
they probably won't fire me when I, I try to experiment and do all kinds of things that rock the boat and that fail and that, uh, you know, we just sort of stumble forward uh, half blindly into this new world of becoming an indigenous church for 21st century Americans and by extension for 21st century people around the world. Uh, so uh, we moved to uh, Duneland, which is like five miles south of Lake Michigan, where there's it's called Duneland because there's a state and national parks for the Indiana Dunes. There are these massive mountains of sand uh, just 45 minutes east of Chicago. Chesterton, where Duneland is located, is sort of this mixture of Chicago suburb, and, and so it has a lot of like people who work in Chicago in the church, in the community, and then people who like rarely leave the county like in their entire lives. And it was just a beautiful place to to help our family like readjust to American culture and uh, grow. And we tried all kinds of things and eventually started doing some really creative missional things. One of the things I'm most excited about is just really uh, hitting the ground now. It's a missional community to a local trailer park mm. and uh, focused on kids. And so we just moved our entire children's program from the church, except for Sunday morning. Uh, we moved everything to this mobile home community as a neighborhood missional community. So we cook food for them and then have a kids program. And eventually this spring, Greg, Greg and a few other people are going to lead it into becoming a monthly dinner church where uh, in addition to the kids stuff, there's a worship service for the families. I mean, there's like 60, 70 people from the community participating every time kids club or it's called kids fun factory gets together. And so that's just beautiful. And it's going to shape the way the church thinks about mission and local mission. And uh, the church also got connected with Free the Girls, which is a, a nonprofit fighting sex trafficking by helping sex trafficking survivors in developing countries start new businesses selling bras, uh, which apparently are the gold of the international used clothing world. Mm. Uh, because they're complex and, and hard to manufacture, they're worth an awful lot as used garments. And so long story short, our church became, or that church, Doonland Community Church, became the warehouse for Free the Girls. And I, I think at the last count, they're processing something like uh, a quarter million or, or maybe more than that, uh, three or 400,000 new and used bras every year pass through this little church of 100, 150 people in northwest Indiana and make their way out to uh, sex trafficking survivors in uh, Mozambique and uh, Uganda and El Salvador and coming soon Costa Rica helps them totally revolutionize their lives and and pay for school for their kids and for themselves and pay for healthcare and uh, become vibrant members of the community again. And so many of the women gradu graduate out of the program into like mainstream jobs as beauticians or hotel workers or running their own small businesses, selling shoes or importing stuff from China to sell in Mozambique. It's, I mean, it's beautiful. And so our church was able to get involved with that. And that really set the church on fire to be part of the abolitionist movement. Mm. And so I was able to help coach uh, a small group of people through a process of community assessment of how we could fight human trafficking there in Indiana. And they settled on strip clubs. And so they started this ministry called Just Love. And they Three or four ladies go into a local strip club every Wednesday night and just give them little gifts like lotion or cookies or roses or gift Starbucks gift cards. And they just talk to them and pray with them and develop relationships with them. And, and the church has uh, thrown like barbecue parties and Christmas parties and uh, all of these things to, to help uh, the ladies from the strip clubs and the bouncers and the owners and their families come together in this non-threatening setting. Mm. And uh, slowly the women are starting to ask uh, Sonia, the leader, could you like do a Bible study for us? Mm. 
interestingly, some other women came to the strip club and started handing out tracks and I uh, were talking about like sort of on the front end, how can you get out of this industry and get free from this? And the, the ladies in the strip club and the, and the owners and bouncers said, you guys need to get out of here. We already have our church ladies and, and they're a lot nicer than you. So go find somewhere else. And <laughs> so we, that, we just took that as really confirmation that we're on the right track, that it's just love and start with love. And, and then the love, like it's just like justice. It is a just love. We're loving them as they are, but we're also working for their freedom and, and freedom in every possible way. So that's some of what we did in Duneland. Um, gosh, it sounds like so much of what you do is about innovation. And I feel like that's a really great segue into the book. Um, so you've co-authored a book called Edison Church's Experiments in Innovation and Breakthrough. Tell me about the inspiration for that book and the kind of the process of putting it together. The, the book really started with, so I said I had this call to write. Well, I kept sending NPH all of these writing proposals for three or four different ideas of I think this could be a book, or this could be a book, or this could be a book. Let's do one of them. Let's get started. And Bonnie Perry uh, set me up to talk with Bruce Newfer when I was in uh, Kansas City for a center for one of NTS's Center for Pastoral Leadership gatherings. And uh, Bruce and I just went for a walk and we're talking. And he said, All right, so tell me all your ideas. And so I told him all my ideas. And he said, Yeah, I don't think any of those are going to work. Uh, but tell me what you're actually doing. And so I started telling him about what we're what we were doing at Duneland, yeah. Duneland Community Church in in Indiana, and how we were just happily failing, and and experimenting and trying new things, and and we felt like every time we failed, we learned something and got a little bit closer to what would actually work, and uh, and it got a, each iteration got a little better. Uh, he said well, that's really interesting. Tell me more about that. And so we just talked talked into that for a while. And he said, I think there's something there. And I think it might work to just tell stories of failure and innovation and uh, talk about this process of uh, trial and error, stumbling into the future of finding out what actually works. That's something pastors would connect with. And so that became the seed for this idea. And so I started writing a proposal for Edison Churches. And the more I started writing about it, uh, the more I, I, I got the feeling that this was bigger than something I could do by myself because uh, I, I was getting started with the PhD process. Mm. And I, I knew I probably couldn't write a book and do that at the same time. And so I invited Greg Arthur to, to help with that to be part of the sort of investigative journalism telling stories of innovative churches, got more and more into it. And we thought, you know, we maybe we need some more help and maybe we need somebody who has a broader platform and, and more credibility instead of just these two guys in, in Indiana. And so we invited Jess Mittendorf, who I, I knew through the Center for Pastoral Leadership. I serve on the, the board. I've, for the CPL at, at Nazarene Theological Seminary. And Jess is the founder and executive director of the CPL. Uh, so Jess loved the idea and said, oh yeah, the Center for Pastoral Leadership can really get behind this. And uh, we can, this will be a great way for, for the CPL to, to participate in this conversation of uh, innovation and change in the church. Mm. And so he he got on board, and uh, then we decided that we actually needed to go visit all of these churches and that we needed 10 churches. And uh, so even the three of us said, whew, this is getting pretty heavy. Maybe we need somebody else. Yeah. And uh, so we invited Megan Pardue to participate. I knew Megan because I was her pastor in Korea. Mm. A really powerful voice in the future of the church. Mm. Um so the four of us, that's how we all four got together. And I, we 
tried to think of what are churches that are doing really innovative things uh, from all kinds of different places. Uh, we, we hoped that we would be able to get half of the churches to be non-Nazarene churches. And it, you know, because we're all Nazarenes, our contacts were more in the Nazarene world. And so seven of the churches are Nazarene. Uh, but we also have a Methodist church, Anglican Baptist church in England, uh, and a non-denominational church in Denver that has the best church name ever, Scum of the Earth Church. <laughs> and uh, we have also have, so we have churches in uh, three different countries as well, and churches of all different sizes. Some church plants, some blow up everything and start over churches, uh, some traditional churches that were just sort of inching into innovation. That would be like Leonard Town Church, uh, a very, very traditional church in a very, very traditional building who just decided to become a, a church that's, that is actually good neighbors. And, and that revolutionized the, the church and the way that they operate. And that led the process to becoming a fairly diverse church as well. Interestingly, almost all of our churches are pretty diverse and or really mirror their communities, uh, which I think is both part of the innovation process and a fruit of the innovation process. Mm. So one of the churches is Albert Hung's church in uh, the LA area. It's you know four different languages, six congregations, two campuses. So just all kinds of different stuff. And so we wanted to tell stories that people from all kinds of different backgrounds and in all kinds of different church settings could identify with and and feel like we can see how God could use us to do something completely new in our area, mm. reaching our people. One of the sort of premises of the book is innovation is hyper-local. It, you, it's, you can't do effective missional innovation out of a box or from a program. Any, any faithful, effective missional innovation happens slowly in a discernment process, understanding what your community is like external to your church and what your church is like and what the best intersection point is between your church and your church as it stands and the gifts that you have and the passions that you have and your community around you as it stands, uh, how do, how do your greatest strengths meet your community's greatest needs? Yeah. And you can't get that at a conference. Like that's, that's a long, slow process of discernment and investigation and trial and error. And so we just really want to empower people to try things that may not work and uh, to be okay with failure as part of the process of successful innovation. That's so beautiful. Um, if somebody wanted to get Edison Churches, get their hands on a book, um, where could they find it? So uh, you can find it at the Foundry uh, website or on Amazon. We would really, really love if you would leave reviews, if mm. you buy, if you get the book, like, uh, the reality is we live in an Amazon-centered world, yeah. and uh, Amazon reviews are, are gold in spreading the word for effective resources. Mm. And also we're starting a sort of an Edison Churches community on Facebook, so you can follow us there. Mm. Uh, and uh, we're going to try to be pushing quote, like publishing quotes from the book and, and gathering stories, so we know it's got to be the people out there who are listening are doing really innovative, creative stuff yeah. and uh, trying and failing and, and failing and succeeding. So uh, one of the things we hope is that the Edison Church's Facebook group becomes a, a place where people can tell their stories and, and develop a learning community where we all get better faster. And so we hope that kind of stuff will happen on the Edison Church's Facebook group. Gosh, I love that. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to be on the show. We're going to transition here in just a minute to interviewing Greg and Megan and Dr. Middendorf. And um, I just really appreciate all of you taking time out of your day to be with us. Hey, thanks, Britt. I, I love what you guys are doing. And uh, thanks for giving us space to share about Edison Churches. 
And uh, for all the This Nazarene Life listeners out there, share your stories. It's important. Everybody needs to hear uh, both your failures and success. Uh, it's, it's a part of the journey. And uh, sharing our story is part one way that we support each other. So yeah. uh, God bless you guys. And uh, I'm looking forward to Young Clergy Con. We're bringing a whole crew from Northern California. And uh, I hope we'll see you there. Yes. Awesome. Thank you. Hey, we're back with Megan Pardue, Greg Arthur, and Jess Minendorf here on the call. Welcome to the show. Hey. Thank you. Thank you. So I kind of want to start with Greg. I thought I'd ask you how you ended up in the Church of the Nazarene. Uh, well, like a lot of people, my uh, church experience has been a birthright and that my parents grew up in the Church of the Nazarene. And uh, there was never a day of my life when I didn't know what it was like to be part of the Church of the Nazarene. That that was sort of the the interesting uh, the uninteresting part of the beginning of the call. The later part got much more interesting as I actually got my call into ministry and uh, spent a large portion of my time in education and schooling outside the denomination, going to non-Nazarene schools, and even serving for five years in the Methodist Church um, as part of my calling and preparation for coming back into the Nazarene Church. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've, I've had the, the distinct privilege of being a Nazarene all my life and having spent uh, a good section of my developmental time uh, outside the church. Well, tell me about that. What inspired you to come back? It was after I got my calling when I was in college. I went to Wheaton College in Illinois, um, and I got my calling in the most Nazarene possible way, part of this <laughs> uh, huge revival that took place uh, on our campus and in, involved, you know, confessing my sins in front of 3,000 of my closest friends and people <laughs> laying hands on me and praying for me. Um, but after that, as I began to explore what God was really calling me to, eventually he told me two things. One was he wanted me to go to Denver Seminary, which mm-hmm. didn't make any sense to me because I didn't know anything about Denver Seminary and I, and I or really, any, really I had no idea why. Um, <laughs> but he also told me he wanted me to go back and serve the Church of the Nazarene mm-hmm. as part of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I said, okay, to both things, and uh, went to Denver and uh, loved it. And uh, at the time, didn't know Denver Seminary was about a, a mile down the road from Denver First Church of the Nazarene, and spent five uh, years serving the church there uh, while I was in seminary. But God sent me on some unusual paths, but made it clear I was supposed to come back and, and serve the tribe of my youth. So, Oh, man, I love that. Well, I've already had um, Megan on the show. So Jess, maybe you could kind of tell us about your call to ministry. Well, I, too, grew up in the Church of the Nazarene. Uh, my dad was a pastor who lived all over the deep south, southeast, uh, all of my growing up years. What I knew of the church was uh, that milieu, the uh, small town, uh, small church. My dad never pastored a large church. Uh, toward the end of his ministry, he pastored Memphis Calvary when it was running around 200 and he built it from about 70 to that. So he he was a good model for me. Mm. But I struggled with the, uh, frankly, the legalisms of the yeah. environment I grew up in much of the time. My mm. dad was not a part of that. So I saw a contrast between the way he lived and preached and taught and the culture within which uh, we, we lived. Mm. Uh, I pastored a little Presbyterian circuit while I was in Nazarene Seminary, and it did some wonderful things for me in broadening my understanding of the church. Mm. And then I went to the southeast to pastor again, but didn't stay there long. Uh, Ended up in New Mexico, and after having crossed the Mississippi River, haven't lived back east of the Mississippi since in the last 40 years. That helped me to get a broader view of the church again, and my theological roots began to find their deeper roots in Wesleyanism mm. in ways that I'd never really seen it uh, lived out before. So I'm I'm the product of the church in a variety of different places. Oh man, that's great. Thank you for sharing that. Um, if you're listening to this and you haven't heard Megan's episode, it's season one, episode nine, and it is still our most listened to episode. So if you haven't checked that out, you should totally look into it. But Megan, I wanted to ask you kind of how you ended up being a part of this project, the Edison Church's book, and kind of what you contributed to the project. 
Yeah, I have known Josh for several years now. I lived in Korea for a year, and many people know that he pastored as a kind of missionary pastor in South Korea at an English congregation on the campus of Korean Nazarene University. So when I did my year of teaching English in 2008-2009, Josh was my pastor. And he called me up knowing that I pastor Refuge, a church that meets in homes, which kind of fits into this criteria of Edison churches, what we were trying to be about with the book. So he invited me to collaborate with these other three. And I contributed to the book by telling the stories of four churches. So one of them is Refuge, the church that I pastor, which um, I've talked about in that episode before. And it's the chapter called The Church That Reclaimed Simplicity and Community. Mm. So telling our story as a church that meets in people's homes with definitely a liturgical format, but very, very simple moving from house to house each Sunday, beginning with a meal and then ending with communion. Mm. Then I also told the stories of three other churches, Um, two other Nazarene churches, Eden Community, which is in Portland, Oregon, Mm. and Trinity Church of the Nazarene, which is in just outside of Los Angeles in Mm. San Gabriel Valley. And then also the story of a church in Houston, Texas, which is a United Methodist Church. And one of my friends from seminary, Reverend Hannah Terry, is the pastor there. Mm. Which of those stories, um, maybe besides Refuge, like really hit you hard? Like what what did you feel like was really meaningful that came out of the project? I mean, I have to say, like, I love telling all these stories and they all struck me in really different ways. Mm. Um But the one that I would love to speak about now that we, you know, we told this story and the book's been written and now to think about the way that this kind of story continues on, I guess the story that comes to mind is about Westbury United Methodist Church in Houston, especially because Houston has now experienced, right, such tragic Mm. flooding because of the hurricanes this past season. Yeah. You know, (laughs) This pastor, Hannah, is a close friend of mine, and you go to school together, and you're formed in the same way, and then just to see how she has, she's serving in a context that is so, so different from my own, Mm -hmm. and telling her stories about um, working with refugees, like literally this church, Westbury, hired her on to go into the community and meet people and figure out like what where are our neighbors and who are our neighbors? Um, And this church has just completely opened themselves to the people in their community. And I don't know. I mean, it's almost overwhelming the ways that all of these different kingdom moments that I talk about in her chapter and imagining her like knocking on the door of, of, of a woman and going in for like what we might consider a pastoral visit Mm. and they don't even speak the the same language and just imagining like how stinking uncomfortable that is. Yeah. And yet like they were, they just laughed together and, and the ways that that kind of moment is, which I talk about in the book, um, Hannah describes as like one of so many times that that's happened, Mm. right? This kind of like laughter and, willing to embrace the failure or the discomfort of not knowing how it is that that she being Hannah and this church are going to be um, better neighbors mm-hmm. and yet discovering that along the way and really hearing like from the from the community of refugees in Houston what it is that that they need and all of these people living in the apartments so near their church um, who have incredible stories of trauma and pain and loss and and yet also so much to teach the church about survival and thriving and it's so different learning her story um you know this is a brick and mortar church like a pretty traditional Eden Methodist church and the the people in her neighborhood and in this you know refugee community love the stability that this really traditional 
and this facility and building and the safety net. They love what that offers to Mm. them when they themselves are often don't have as much security, whether that's like job security or financial or their mobility is challenging because of language or needing to rely on public transportation. All of the challenges they find, um, they find community in like the stability of a church building, which is so different than the church that I pastor. Yeah. But the contrast is, um, I don't know, really it's compelling Mm. to see like how both are, both our pictures of God's kingdom. Yeah, that's great. Um, Greg, maybe from you, how did you get involved in the project and kind of tell me about one of the churches you wrote about? All of us have the same story of getting involved with the project, which is uh, we knew Josh and he talked us into it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> for me, uh, that happened because we shared an office for the last number of years. Uh, Josh Josh has been on staff, was on staff at my church for four and a half years. So, oh, wow. um he, he, this is one of the projects he had dreamed up that I was I was excited about and happy to participate in, um, mm. and then gave him a hard time about it every time it got difficult to do it while we were also doing our job. And <laughs> for that, so uh, that was great. Um, so the the part that was really a joy for me in in telling these stories was um, uh, it was one certainly great to tell the story of my church, Doolin Community Church which is, I think, is a story a lot of churches can relate to, because it's a church that, it's about 70 years old, but honestly, 60-plus years of that history have were, were a history of futility, mm. and uh, had so many ups and downs, and um, was just sort of an unlikely place to have any sort of breakthrough and, and transformation. So I loved it to share that story. Mm. Um, but the other two churches I got to tell about um, were also churches that had already impacted me, and so as soon as we started talking about these churches that had innovated through failure, um, those two churches were really uh, immediately the ones I thought of. Uh, and that was telling the story of St. Thomas Crooks in Sheffield, England, um, a church who's, uh, who has spawned a global movement um, that has deeply impacted my ministry personally. Mm. Um, and uh, what was fun about that story was being able to tell the story about the person who follows the innovator. Mm. Um, oftentimes we know about the first generation of innovation that comes from this really dynamic, uh, apostolic sort of leader. Mm. And when you see a leader like that, I think it actually discourages you from trying to innovate Yeah. because, um, you're like, you know, you don't have the charisma or the gifts or you're just not a global leader like that. Mm. Um, but in particular, uh, in telling that story, I, I focused on, uh, Paul McConaughey, who was the pastor who followed up. Mike Breen, who was the dynamic leader who had first brought about all the innovation. Um, because And Paul is one of the most uh, down-to-earth, just unpretentious, uh, salt-of-the-earth sort of guys. And he's the sort of leader who leads through deep, deep character and spirit. He's a person you can relate to as a leader yeah. and say, oh, I, I can lead like that. And to see the innovations he brought and the, the the honesty he had in sharing his failures, um, just really an encouraging story and uh, the type of leader you can follow. And the other story I got to tell was the story of the best named church in the entire world. It's got to be. If there's a contest, they've got to win. And that's Scum of the Earth Church in Denver. You, you just can't beat the name. Uh, Scum is, is pretty well known in Denver. And the pastor who started with it was a guy that I went to seminary with in Denver. And so I had sort of followed their trajectory for the last 17 years and had seen uh, their whole story. But Scum is just this unbelievable, beautiful example of the kingdom of God operating at the margins of society. And the the amazing part about that church is that the innovations they've brought and where they've really brought all change um, hasn't been in being a church where um, there's this goth culture that's there or there's homeless people there or, you know, those sorts of things, I think. Other churches would look at and say, oh, we need to dress like this and talk like this and have a space like this. Then we can do that sort of ministry because mm. we like to franchise those sorts of things. Yeah. Um, but the most remarkable reason that that church has had breakthrough and has sustained uh, an incredible ministry for this, this long has been they're the most uh, authentic church I think I've ever encountered. Mm. They just they have no no sort of pretense to it and um it's a community that they minister to that can sniff out religious stuff or insider Christian language 
or people who are, you know, doing bait and switch, like they can sniff that out instantly. Mm. And if you're not real and authentic and loving in this really incredible way, um, you just don't have a shot. And that was the incredible, the culture of that has been the incredible innovation they brought. So that just, um, seeing that, hearing those stories, uh, it's really incredible. Did you have the opportunity to go there? I did. Yes. Um, I hadn't been there in a number of years, but I got a chance to go back and visit with them and worship with them and, uh, talk with, uh, certainly just not just the pastors, but, uh, every, after every service they meet on Sunday evenings, uh, there's a meal. And so I got to stay for the meal and just uh, fellowship and talk to people and ask them their experiences and how did they get there. And, uh, it was really, it was really awesome. That's great. I love that. Um, Dr. Middendorf, maybe you could kind of tell us how you got involved with the project and, um, one of the churches that you wrote about. Well, I, uh, got involved with the project actually through, uh, Bonnie Perry, editor at Beacon Hill Press mm. and Josh, uh, Bonnie wanted to know if I would kind of give an, uh, you know, just an evaluation of what Josh had proposed. And I think she was a little uneasy as to where it might go, but after I talked to Josh and got an overview of what was going on and felt, I just felt like it was an essential resource for the church. Mm. So I told Bonnie, not only would I be willing to, uh, you know, review it, but I'd be glad to take part in it if I could. Yeah. And that was started. So I wrote on only one of the chapters, but uh, my my part was also to read all of the chapters and do a reflection of mm. the final chapter. Uh, one of the final chapters is my reflection on each of the chapters. Um, I think to some extent they wanted uh, a former general superintendent's name on the book <laughs> to keep it from being thrown out by people who were afraid of it. But it, because, yeah. you know, you read the book and you realize there are some challenging uh, settings there mm. require you to really think through what what do we mean when we say church? Yeah. And so uh, I was thrilled to take part in it. I felt like it was a vital, vital conversation for us to have. Yeah. Now, the church I wrote about was one of our traditional churches. However, it is one of those stories where, uh, similar to what Greg was describing in his own local setting, a church that was a church plant, uh, on a city square in a, in a hundred-year-old building that was just going nowhere. This The little town center had deteriorated to the point that there were mostly empty buildings around the square. Mm. Uh, Paul McPherson had been there for uh, his first church out of seminary, pastored there for five or six years, went on from there to something else. And in the meantime, uh, the church continued to struggle, didn't make a whole lot of progress. Paul was without an assignment and the church was without a pastor. Mm. And they asked if he could come back, which doesn't in and of itself is something rather unique. Yeah. But in uh, his coming back, he got there with 12 people the first Sunday was there. But in the meantime, the little town square had revitalized mm. and Paul somehow was able to help the people connect with their neighbors. And that church has literally turned around. It's very atypical in many ways in the way it functions. Uh, multiple services are a necessity because the facility is small. Mm. But they have found a way to be one of the most visible churches in the entire community by staying right where they were, by being a presence on the town square. And he has become heavily involved across the, uh, the city and the county. The county seat is just a block from the church. Mm. And they have just turned things around in, a, in an amazing way. And I, it's just a fun story to tell of a church that found its way forward. Oh, that's great. I love that. Um, maybe for any or each of you or all of you, what is your hope for this book? What are your hopes and dreams for these stories? Well, let me dive in quickly because uh, my involvement was because I felt like we needed to talk about church in ways other than the the ways we often talk about it. Mm. What are the outliers that sometimes people raise their eyebrows at? Church, uh, the, the scum of the earth, my word. What do you do with a name like that? Well, you, you begin to realize what you do with a name like that is really begin to be what Jesus said we ought to be. 
Uh, you look at some of the other uh, churches, the, the church in Germany that doesn't have a church building and a regular schedule and a lot of people don't know what's going on. It is as organic as anything you could ever find anywhere. Uh, that, again, is just a stretch for many of our people. Yeah. So how do we get that conversation going so that those folks doing that kind of ministry are not considered to be somehow unacceptable? Uh, so can we give the church the ability to have a conversation that causes every local church in every setting to say, well, are we missing something right where we are? Could yeah. we be better than we are? Yeah. Uh, for me, the, the biggest hope within all this is that, um, we will have people begin to reimagine what the future of the church can and should be, um, it, one of the reasons I, I wanted to tell these stories, and I hope we get to tell a lot more stories sort of through this project and what goes beyond right. it, mm-hmm. is is that um, I'm really hopeful about the future of the church. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm hopeful about, so hopeful about the future of the church, the Nazarene, but uh, far beyond that, about uh, the church and those who are, have been willing um, to fail forward, to, to fail over and over again in pursuit of new experiences, new models, uh, and just breakthrough for the kingdom. And uh, if you pay attention and look around, these stories are everywhere. Um, and they don't always look like we expect them to look like. Um, but if you, if, you, if you pay attention, they're there. Yeah. Uh, and so to be able to tell those stories, um, my hope is that we'll be able to just hear a lot more of these stories mm-hmm. and, tell, and tell even more of them. Um, but also that, um, that people who encounter this in their own local settings will begin to sort of rethink of where they are and uh, connect with one of these stories and think, oh, you know, we could follow a path like this. Maybe there is hope for us to sort of be different and to, to move into the future together. One of my hopes is just that when someone reads the book, they'll see how different each of these witnesses is. They're all showing what church could be or helping to as as Jess and Greg said, right, break open the imagination to what church can be that's different, but they're also really different from one another. Mm. And so one of my hopes is that this helps create conversation about the church in the future, church planting that doesn't try to follow a really rigid plan. Um, It seems that we often like train, you know, let, let's do like a church planting training and here's what you're going to do. Step A, step B, step C. Yeah. That works sometimes, but it's not the only way of doing church and being faithful in your community. Mm. So, you know, I hope that people see, whoa, look, look what this church really cared about, right? Look what was so important to Trinity. It was so important to them that their congregation speak the language of where their neighbors, what mm. uh, the languages of their neighbors, yeah. which meant that Trinity had to be changed from a Chinese speaking congregation to a Chinese and English speaking congregation to a Chinese English and Spanish speaking congregation. And it wasn't necessarily, they didn't have to plant like four new churches. They, they were just willing to adapt and change um, as the needs around them changed and continue to be faithful to their community. So I just hope that it like breaks us a little bit out of a rigid structure and says, let's try something. What is it that you care about? Um, I remember one of the questions that the Eden community asked is, what is it that breaks our hearts? Mm-hmm. Like this group of people here, what breaks our hearts and how is God calling us to lean into that brokenness and, and join in the work that God is already doing? That's a beautiful question. We should all be asking that. I love that. Um, just kind of bringing it home, Dr. Middendorf, what gives you hope for the future of the Church of the Nazarene? What is it that's keeping you here? Well, one of the things that keeps me here are, are the uh, three co-authors of this book mm. and the kind of thinking they do and the kind of stories they wrote and the kind of uh, the, the, the demonstration in these stories that the church is not monolithic in its approach. 
Uh, I love the fact that the young generation of pastors is as passionate about our doctrine of holiness as any generation we've ever had, mm. but it is not going to look or sound like it did uh, to my generation growing up. Yeah, That's not a bad thing. That's yeah. a good thing. I hope that this gives us the ability to know that the work of the Holy Spirit is as dynamic today as it has ever been in history. The Holy Spirit is not weakened by whatever is going on in the culture around us. And what the church has to do is find the places where the Holy Spirit is at work or where the Holy Spirit would like to be at work with others who are willing to be at work with the Spirit. And we could get a lot done. Mm. And uh, I'm around because I see this kind of creative, dynamic energy at work in the church, mm-hmm. and I don't have uh, a lot of pessimism about the future. In fact, I have a tremendous amount of optimism about the future. I think our message, I think our time uh, to serve Christ in the kingdom is this is probably the best time we could ever imagine mm-hmm. being able to exist. I have an imagination in my own heart that someday the angels will say to us, You mean to tell me you were in earth, on earth? during that era mm. when the Spirit was doing so much. And we'll be able to tell stories like this. Gosh, that's that's awesome. I just love it so much. Well, thank you, the three of you, for putting so much effort into this project. I know it was a side hustle for which you got paid very little, perhaps nothing. And I just want to thank you for taking the time and energy to tell these stories, to share with us what God is doing all over Thank you, Brett, for giving Thank us you. the opportunity. Thanks, mm-hmm. Brett.